In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... Oops. Through the fathomless depths of space swims the Star Turtle, the Great Natuan, and on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So warm up your favorite axiom, say a prayer to that penguin over there, and join us on our journey through Small Gods and the Complete Discography. Okay, uh, so tonight we are discussing Small Gods, the 13th book. Wow, 13. Uh, in the Discworld series published in 1992. Hey, we've been doing this for over a year now. That's pretty we, exciting. Yeah, uh, and a lot of that has been... It's It's been a long decade, friends. God, it's been yeah. Th- this decade that we've been recording has been a long decade, but I think this, this has an, been a bright spot for all of us. Yeah, and tonight uh, our friend Minna has the night off, uh, so instead we invited, pretty last minute, uh, our friend Evan. Hey! Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Evan Saft. My pronouns are they, them. I'm the Friendly Neighborhood GM over on the Rollout Podcast. You can also find me voice acting in a couple places. You can find my games um, on Itch. I do way too many things and have, like committed myself to way too many projects so why not jump on a podcast for a book that i haven't read in 12 years uh with roughly four hours lead-in time we're good friends honestly you're probably that probably makes you better prepared than some of us sometimes (laughs) (laughs) who've read the book (laughs) Mm -hmm. i do love this book though i'm going to put that out there and uh what was what was your first exposure to discworld Oh, jeez. So, so here's the thing. My first, first exposure to Discworld um, was outside the context of me understanding it because there was some Flash game quiz on probably Newground, some site that was trivia. And, you know, you had, you had different categories of trivia. And uh, one of them was Discworld for whatever reason. So... That was probably when I was like preteens, and so I just every now and then, like the name Rincewind was just in my head from this primordial memory. Um, and then when I was uh going, you know, uh, when I was reading more, as, as I think in a lot of ways, uh, probably a lot of people did, you know, I was going past young fantasy, so I was growing out of Redwall a little bit. Um, and I was a lot of hard sci-fi, and then I don't even, I can't even remember where I picked up Discworld. I just know that I found, I went and I found the chart of reading order and went, all right, I am going to read Discworld. That's impressive, my friend. So the the, the bit here is that uh, Anna and I have both read pretty much all of them except for the shepherd's crown and and justin is our resident tourist where would you sort of pin yourself in that spectrum uh i'm probably around 60 to 70 percent um i've read a lot of the series through so um you know i've read all of rinsewind i've read most of 
yes, no, I've read all. I've read all of um, the Guard. I've read uh, all of Death. Um, I've read two out of three for Moyes von Lipwig. I've read I, Witches is the series that I've had the least um, interaction with. And then uh, some of the one-offs here and there. So actually, now that I'm thinking of it, probably closer to, like, 80%. And um, and then, you know, uh, Raising Steam, which uh, stays on my shelf and I've not been able to bring myself to read yet. That's yeah. not technically the last. Yeah. Yeah. But... I can't explain the reason my brain does things. There's, no. there's a lot of... You're in good company, though. Um, and I realized, actually, that I haven't read Racing Seam either. Um, huh. So, Aaron, our premise has been has been oh, no. not quite correct. Scrap um, it. We're going to have to start from the beginning. Oh, yeah. no, I'm getting kicked off the podcast now <laughs> I, for, I'm for going, revealing this. I, I'm going to chuck my microphone through the internet <laughs> and hit, off, hit both of you. Deservedly so. You're also actually our first guest with Discworld background, which is kind of fun uh, because we sort of... Um, <laughs> because, spoiler, I was originally going to be on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look behind the curtain, folks. Haha, <laughs> 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 it was me the whole time. With poor... With, <laughs> remember that thing where I have too many commitments? This <laughs> this broke the camel's back. And, and we are perpetually apologetic to, to Amr for... Uh, booming them with with pyramids uh hopefully hopefully they'll forgive us someday yeah oh man okay so so do we have titles for ourselves we do have titles because we are themed for this episode yeah so i can i can go first i'm anna and i'm the god of having far too many hobbies i am justin the god of content creation and ill-advised ideas I am the god of last-minute editions and half-remembered paragraphs. And I am Aaron, the god of baking puns and pans. So this one doesn't have a dedication, interestingly. Uh, a lot of them do. Just starts with uh, with a turtle, but actually a tortoise, which yes. is kind of an, an interesting tweak. Well, and, and on that note, um, I prepared the plot synopsis this time. So we've already discussed on several episodes how much Terry liked to delve into the nature of belief, and Smell Gods is the first book that truly revolves around these concepts. The belief that serves as a lens here is Omnianism, which is a rare monotheistic religion on the disc, where the gods truly are real and aren't shy of zapping anyone who believes otherwise with a thunderbolt. In addition... Omnians believe that the world is a sphere that orbits the sun, and their everyday lives follow a rigid code of tenets laid out by Om through a long line of prophets. The Omnian empire, religion, country, city, citadel, um, one of those, all of them, is ruled by the iron fist of the church elites, with the forces of the Quisition ready to make an example out of anyone who wavers in their belief or speaks heresy. The current target of the Quisition is the Turtle Movement, or Chelonians, who are determined to spread the truth that the world is, in fact, a disc riding on the back of enormous elephants, in turn, riding on and circling around the shell of a gargantuan turtle, and that the turtle moves. 
Zooming in on the Citadel further, we have our protagonist, Brother, a church novice. Brother is generally considered to be not very bright, but his tr- his faith is truly unshakable. Understandably, then, he is very concerned when he begins to hear voices. Well, one voice. He looks around and determines that the voice isn't coming from a demon, but in fact from a small tortoise who, who might be a demon still. Um, but this small tortoise claims to be an incarnation of the great god Am. Brother is suspicious of the tortoise's claims. After all, Am has always incarnated as majestic animals, such as the great eagle or great bull, and apparently has been trapped in the body of a small tortoise for three years. Weird. Even more suspiciously, the other Omnians, even those far higher in the church hierarchy than Brother, cannot hear the voice. And the tortoise's statements regarding the previous Omnian prophets are blasphemy. And it it should also be noted that uh, it is about time for the next prophet to show up, according to the, I guess, every hundred years or so TikTok of the Omnian religion. Yeah, the, the, the Omnian religion is due for a new prophet. They also invented TikTok. <laughs> Just those dank, <laughs> dank Omnian teens. So, so Om proves his identity to Brother by reminding him of an early memory um, with the idea that, like, you know, the, 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 as, as God he would have seen all, etc., um, the Santa and, Claus conundrum. Yes. Um, is is the tortoise actually Santa Claus? We will never know. I, I wouldn't imagine the the the, tur- the tortoise to be voiced by Tim Allen. So that changes things. Shortly after this revelation, brother brother is discovered. Uh, he's rolling on the ground with his fingers in his ears by the deacon Vorbis of the Quisition. Um, and and our poor lad faints from this compounded shock. This will be a recurring theme, if I recall correctly. Uh, Vorbis Vorbis has him taken to the infirmary, and as a as just an aside, he tips the tortoise on its back, wedging its shell so that it can't flip itself back over. In the infirmary, Vorbis learns that Brother is a is an interesting person. He is not considered to be very bright, and in fact. Uh, is illiterate, but he has perfect recall, a trait that Vorbis realizes that he can use. Brother's memory is tested, and Vorbis states that Brother will be joining the diplomatic delegation to Ephib, which leaves in the morning. Meanwhile, Am is rescued by Lutzi, the history monk. Um, he also witnesses a torture chamber of the Quisition and is nearly smashed and eaten by an eagle before Brother rescues him. This will also be a recurring theme. Yes. <laughs> it's also how the book starts. Yes, yes. Um, so, um, you know, with his, with his ventures through the Citadel, at this point has realized that nobody has been able to hear his voice. And... Um begins to suspect that Brother might, in fact, be his only believer at this point. Brother, Vorbis, and a garrison of troops sail for Ephib the next morning. They, they barely make it there after Vorbis incites the Sea Queen's wrath by killing and eating a porpoise. 
Um, the the party are then, after arrival, led to the palace blindfolded. Um, and their path takes them through a absolutely, completely deadly labyrinth. And we learn the reason for the expedition to Ephebe. An Omnian priest was killed here, uh, prompting the Omnian navy to sail to Ephebe to avenge the priest, and the navy was in turn destroyed by Ephebe's Archimedes death ray. Vorbis and the tyrant of Ephebe have plans to sign a peace treaty to resolve all of this business. Due to his perfect memory, Brother can travel through the labyrinth freely, at Om's urging to find a philosopher, he searches the outer city, and the two discover that the city is, in fact, swarming with philosophers. Um, they witness an active philosophical discussion that's definitely not a pub brawl, and are directed toward Didactylos, who lives near the library. Didactylos explains that the Omnian church has grown so large that it's in fact no longer Om that the populace believes in, but the church itself. And this confirms Om's suspicion that Brother really is his only believer. This ability to travel through the labyrinth, unfortunately, is precisely why Vorbis brought Brother along. He orders Brother to guide him out and then opens the gates to the city, leading out into the desert. The Omnian army is thus let into the city, and Brother learns the truth behind the whole enterprise. Vorbis has been working toward this invasion for months. The priest was sent to Ephebe simply to provide a nominal reason for it, and in fact was not even killed there. He was killed by the Quisition after he returned to Omnia. With the invasion complete, Vorbis orders Brother to burn down the Great Library, and Brother meets up there with Didactylos, um, his nephew Urn, and the Omnian sergeant Simony who is in fact a fanatical atheist and follower of the turtle movement. The group realize that there's a way to burn the library while still rescuing its contents. They simply show Brother each of the library scrolls and trust that he will be able to memorize them. Brother finally passes out after 200 scrolls and the group flee the city in Urn's steam-powered boat. Out on the water, the Sea Queen strikes again literally zapping the steamboat with lightning and wrecking the Omnian warship that was sent out to follow it. Brother, Um, and Vorbis all wash up on the shore. Vorbis is badly injured, but Brother insists on carrying him as they begin their long journey through the desert and back to Omnia. Vorbis slowly recovers and is able to walk on his own, but he remains catatonic. Meanwhile, Brother and Um's relationship both deepens and becomes more contentious. Um is confused and angry that Brother has refused to abandon Vorbis, uh, kill him, use him as lion bait, eat him, etc. And uh, Am is also unsettled by having to fight off the many other small gods who want to claim Brother as their own follower. And, and is also unsettled by an abandoned temple that they find in the desert, which is essentially the grave of another small god. They find the tracks of the army and slowly edge closer and closer to Omnia. When they're nearly on its doorstep, Vorbis finally acts. He knocks Brother unconscious and throws a tortoise he believes to be 
Brother's tortoise to the eagles. Vorbis picks up Brother and speeds toward the city, leaving Om plodding behind. Meanwhile, Didactylos, Urn, and Simony have already reached Omnia in their boat, which was uh, set to like light speed superpower by the lightning bolt. And Simony introduces the two philosophers to the revolution. Didactylos is upset that his simple scientific account of disc cosmology has been adopted as essentially a religious text. And Urn is commissioned for another marvel of iron and steam, this time a war machine. Brother awakes in the Citadel and is told that Vorbis, the brave soul who led Brother through the desert, is the new prophet. Urn and Simony have a plan of action, though. Urn will sabotage the hydraulics of the great gates to the Citadel, while Simony directs the war machine. As, as all of this occurs, Brother confronts Vorbis. But things go pear-shaped. And while the doors are indeed opened, the war machine fails and Brother is arrested and sentenced to death. The death sentence in this case being slowly baked alive on the back of a giant cast iron turtle. As Brother is manacled to the turtle, Om finally returns. Um, he very cannily had realized that he could not get to the citadel on foot in time so he was picked up by an eagle but bit it in the vulnerables and convinced it to drop him in a very specific place right onto vorbus's head vorbus is of course killed instantly and the crowd surges with renewed belief in Am, who is once again a great god and releases brother from the manacles Looking to the water and seeing enemy fleets approaching, Brother realizes that the situation is still dire and that it requires human rather than divine action. He carries the body of Vorbis to the shores and begins to parley with the captains of the arriving warships. He nearly succeeds, but is interrupted against his instructions uh, by the Omnian army as they arrive at the shores. Om brawls with the other gods in uh, Dun Manifestin, the the home of the Discworld gods and forces them to work with him to stop the war. Essentially, essentially have the, having the other gods, you know, caught by the vulnerables, perhaps. With, the tr- with these threats dealt with, Brother is recognized as the true prophet and begins enacting reforms in Omnia. Didactylos is made bishop. Simony is made head of the Quisition. And the doors of Omnia are open to cultural exchange, philosophers, and even worshippers of other gods. The Ephebian Library is restored with a second copy of its contents kept in Omnia for reference. And we fast forward into the epilogue through this golden age to Brother's death of old age. A hundred years after all of this began. Death comes from him and brings his soul to the the black desert of the Omnian belief where brother then encounters Vorbis who had been too afraid to cross the desert alone to whatever comes after. And brother once again guides Vorbis through the desert toward judgment. It's, it's a, it's a very different, I feel like book from a lot of the previous Discworld novels that we've read. It's, it's a bottle episode it also happens about a hundred years or so before the quite a bit before that. 
Yeah, I mean, it happens like a hundred ish years before I think all of the other events that take place in most of the Discworld books. I think I think it takes place quite a bit before that. Could be, yeah. yeah. We we haven't really seen modern Omnians in uh, in Ankh-Mor Pork in the books as of yet. I don't think. Correct. Yeah, and there are some yeah. references to like, uh, like there's some references to Jelly Baby, where it is like clearly mm-hmm. at a level where it's not in pyramids. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the some of the philosophers in Ephib are the same philosophers we see in pyramids, um, huh. but pyramids also is like super fucked up time wise. Yeah. Um. So so the two of these can can kind of be like wherever the hell you want them to be on the timeline a little bit other than like right. in the past, but who, who knows how long pyramids uh, occurred over because time is meaningless and etc. So it's a relatively small cast of characters. Yeah. And there's only one plot. Yeah. There's only one plot. So Which my, is... my summary was less than like 45 minutes. <laughs> For once it is a long. Life. It is a long one, though. I think yeah. this is one of the longest Discworld books. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There and you know, there's a lot of details that I left out in my summary because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, someone We're could perhaps the book read you. the book. Yeah. Um, but those are those are the main major major notes. So just sort of reviewing the the major characters, uh, we we the main character, well, one of the two really main characters is Brother, who I always was reading as Brutha, and I, I guess I, I, I also always read it as Brutha, but there's this pun at the beginning where right. one of the other Omnians is like, well, we can't promote him because then he'd be Brother, Brother, Brother. brother. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, at the beginning of the book, he's a, a novice in the holy city of the Citadel, which is the locus of the Omnian faith, as we sort of talked about before. He's he's known as the Ox, I guess, because he's big, clumsy, and thoughtful, and listens. That's the thing. He listens, which scares some of the people, uh, and has two critical features for the story. Uh, a perfect memory. He apparently even remembers being born, and also a crystal clear faith in Om. Uh, and then there's Om. Yeah, we have Om, Om himself, who has has a lot of character arc in this. Because um, he, he enters, you know, screaming curses and um, gradually realizes what's up and has a big change of faith in terms of how he views mortals. But he he once once upon a time was a great god is no longer and becomes one once again. The classic hero's journey: become a turtle, ver- go out into the ocean, uh, get stranded in the desert, get picked up and dropped by an eagle several times. It's it's exactly what Joseph Campbell was going for. You see, it's like poetry; it rhymes. Justin, do you want to talk about Vorbis? Uh, so Vorbis is, I think. I I think this is maybe I, I'd have to go through like our history, but I think he's like one of our first real like antagonist figures that we are getting here in Discworld. Uh, Vorbis is the I believe he's a deacon at the start of the book, and he is a um, exquisitor. 
um, which means that he doesn't do any of the inquisiting himself, but oversees it all. He is a very ruthless person who uh, is very much emblematic of the. He is a he is a worshiper of the the structure of Omnianism, not a believer in all. He is ruthless, cruel, and a overall despicable person. He's definitely coded as a sociopath with all of the like casual cruelty to animals too. Yeah. yeah. But in like the, the true sociopath way, which is like understanding how to utilize societal structures to his benefit. Mm-hmm. Throughout the book, we see him, you know, ascend to prophethood. And I try to think if like, I'm just going through other, I, the only other, the only other like true antagonist I can think of off the top of my head is the fairy godmother from, uh, which is abroad. Mm. Which I find interesting because it's like just so far there haven't been like there have been cosmic forces involved as antagonists, but we haven't had like too many like just straight up villains. Well, weird, weird sisters had the Duke, right? Right. Yeah. But I think he's in a very different category from we've never gotten We've never gotten an, a, a villain who's gotten this much sort of exposure in the text. Yeah. And then there's sort of, I've, I've lumped sort of all of Ephibians together because yes. they sort of generally play a, a enlightening part. There's sort of like a herd, a gaggle. What's what's a, what's the collective noun of philosophers? An argument? That uh, sounds useless. about right. <laughs> a diatribe. Uh, a diatribe. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Oh. Uh, um, I honestly love the Ephibians of this. They're yeah. they're they're like as as somebody who likes those uh, classic uh, those classical studies memes for Hellenistic teens. Uh, <laughs> they're they're honestly like just the the various like philosophers and the like are like this this interesting point between they're they're trying they're they're uh, Pratchett has them doing the work of both like. The classical, the, like the classical philosophers, and a little bit of like Renaissance thinkers. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the turtle moves is is, and this is all sort of a Galilean like narrative. Yeah, the the struggle between between the Omnians and the the Chilonians. You know, the the turtle moves is is a clear reference to uh, you know the possibly apocryphal. Uh, thing that Galileo said, which was, and yet it moves. Yeah. You know, and, and, and also like the, the Copernican, Copernican on the movement of planetary bodies. Right. Um, it's a which, fun mishmash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Th- this is like, it's this weird, like history, religion, mishmash, which, um, can, can, I, I just want to go like into like overall impressions. I usually, um, find fantasy depictions of religion to be not great. Um, because for, at least for like my history with a lot of like wasp fantasy authors, they're coming from a place of, I don't like this. And I, and I just want to say church bad. Um, yeah. Uh, or at least that's been my experience. Um, but I think this is a really interesting book because it's like there's 
there's a lot that's being said here, but it's also approaching it like a historic, you know, it's taking a historical event like the Protestant Reformation and the arise of heliocentric bottles of physics and like, okay, let's do something with this. And that's really much more interesting to me than how fantasy novels typically approach like a powerful monotheistic religion. Yes. We've been talking, I've been bringing this up over and over again and we've been talking about this, but like, it's funny how it took him 13 books to finally sit down and be like, okay, I'm actually going to discuss this, you know, yeah, to to really get into like faith and spirituality just sort of directly. Yeah. Um without without the trappings of Egyptology. Yeah. Cuz Pyramids has like it's a bit of a step toward this, but it's also an awful book. Hmm. I think it def- yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of stuff that like gets introduced in Pyramids, but like uh, it's more mature. It's much more mature, yeah. It, it, and it's like Terry taking a second crack at it, and he's like, okay, I've got this now. I'm not going to go into this... I'm not going to try and mix it up with this thing about identity, which I've been futzing around for four books with. Uh, <laughs> it, it's interesting because uh, of Discord that I can recall, Small Gods has the sort of strongest thesis to it. Um, particularly because it just gets to focus on one plot, it gets to focus on the small batch of characters, it isn't as intricately linked to kind of the quote-unquote current events or recent history of the disc. Um, so it, it it is allowed to stand on its own a bit more rather than needing to be in relation to uh, other, uh, other books, other pieces of the Discworld lore, quote-unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Aside from like a couple mentions of Angmar Park as possibly a place that Didactylos could could flee to, I feel like the only like clear through line there is uh, to to the main uh, the main fiction is uh, CMOT Dibbler's. Um, well, uh, yeah, I guess Lucy too. Um, although that's this is is this his first appearance too? You know, and we can talk about the the um, CMOT Dibbler. Um, possibly ancestor, cousin, you know, depending on where this falls in the timeline of Discworld. May I present yeah. the, may I present the, the my, my theory is that wherever capitalistic models of society approach, Dibbler will appear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to like, there could, there, there doesn't even need to be like a, like person to have spawned this creature It'll just appear on its own. It's a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. The thing is, you're right. Dibbler is a motif. Yeah, he's he's the small god of opportunistic capitalism. He's, he's the small god of excellent deals. What are you talking about? <laughs> and yogurt that definitely has not gone off in this heat. Yogurt on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> That might be that. That's probably what. Well, that was probably the joke that like just made me stand up. And I'm just like, I need to walk away for a minute after reading that. Yeah, yeah. This this is a, a book that I definitely remember reading, and I don't remember much about. Didn't remember much about until it's, I read it. It's there's a lot, and it's it's very it. 
it is dense in a way that is um, unlike a lot of Discworld, um, from what I recall. Because, uh, again, because there's not sort of that transitioning between different stories, um, a lot more time is spent in different locales. Like, uh, you know, we went through it, you know, Anna went through it in, in you know, what, 10 minutes? But they're in a Phoebe's for a while. Yeah. There is a lot of discussion of philosophy. There is a lot of Yeah. That's about a solid third of the book. Like there there is a there is a lot of detail and a lot of I'm trying to think of the right words here, but but time is given to each of these moments. It's not there there it isn't just a plot point when they are anywhere. There it it is a moment for uh, things to for for sort of the themes of the story to be presented and analyzed. In some ways, it's also, and and I don't mean this. This is not meant to like rag on the book in any way. Um, it's in some ways the least funny of the books that we've covered so far. Like it's the he. It is very funny, but it's. It has There's a, less focus on gags. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are so many gags. There are so, so many gags. I, <laughs> but, okay. I, I might call this like the antithesis to the Terry, like we see in Color of Magic and Light Fantastic. I, I've, I've gone on record here talking about Terry's very um, frustrating, we'll say, writing habits in those first early books where, you know, doesn't want to slow down, just wants to keep making machine gun puns. Yeah. But, like, here, everything gets time to... It, it gets... You get time to settle in with a place. Uh, you never you never feel like you're being rushed through anything. And it's like... It's not just, oh, hey, there's some ideas here, and we're just going to pepper them in here along with the jokes. I mean, we get time to live... You know, we get time to see what's going on here live in it i mean there's like there's like uh five or six pages just in the labyrinth yeah <laughs> like yeah. like and we get to like we get to know a lot about the labyrinth we get, you know everything gets we get to see a lot of it and I, it definitely like it's a longer book and because we get that a little bit slower pace. I think it gives everything a little bit more time to breathe. And I, it also like gives the reader a chance to like, okay, what are you actually trying to do here? Um, there are, I think there are less like compared to like guards where you're getting like, sometimes you just get hit over the head with one of Terry's philosophical statements. Um, it's inviting the reader a lot more to like, okay, what do you think is being, is going on here? And lets you sort of consume the book at a more mentally leisurely pace. Yeah. And following on that, I think there's a lot more setup and payoff as opposed to earlier books where it's just like what you were saying, just bam, 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 you know, plot points. He sets things up, repeats them, says, are you looking? And then, you know, has them pay off. And then the, the third prestige. Act. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it really, yeah, I, I agree. He's really developing as a writer at this point. Um, yeah. And, and there's no big, like, 
there's no big like vime speeches you know um you know some of the other books have had you know the like the these sort of like you know big speeches that like have a philosophical statement that's like spread over like two pages and it's really pithy and gets like quoted a lot and is great writing but i feel like that all of this book is that that we, we can we'll talk about this later but i actually struggled with thinking of like what was the button moment here because i felt like the whole thing was to mm. a large extent so same as you aaron i i also didn't remember a lot of this um i remember that journey through the desert very clearly a lot of other things really had escaped my memory um and that's one of the things that's made this reread of these books so fun um, like it's been nearly a decade since I touched most of them. And so we get this really, I'm, I'm enjoying the mix of like nostalgia. There's books that I like more than I remembered, uh, like movie, moving pictures. I really enjoyed that and felt it was mediocre before. And, uh, you know, there's also the books that like, they don't don't hold up uh, when the rose tinted glasses are removed, but this definitely this one definitely holds up. I think it really is a it's a meditation on on faith, belief, the the nature of spirituality, and and sort of also what gods and people should share in in a you know consenting relationship. I guess really the tension bet- between belief and knowing, sort of the D and D cleric problem. Um. We can get into that later too, because I've marked that down somewhere else. Uh, the other thing that really called out to me, especially since I was reading this over High Holidays, uh, we're recording this several months in advance. Sorry, listeners. Uh, is is the idea that you can sharpen your belief by questioning it? Which you know, at least from from the the sermons that I remember from from High Holidays, that's sort of a you know a major theme of Judaism. God says, "Do this." We ask why. <laughs> and we argue about it in the margins. <laughs> I mean, so I think that's part of it. I mean, but I think there's also a strong through line of um, the sort of structure of religion um, mm. and its effect on the world and how uh, it is utilized and utilized by people and, and also um, how people in themselves um act out onto the world, um, whether that is through the lens of religion or through science or whatever, the impact that one makes in the world and what leads them through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how much we want to get into things, but, you know, I think there's, uh, if, 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 uh, go for it, friend. All right. Dig deep. Well, so, um, you know, starting out on this, um, there's there's really two two main factions, we'll call them, which are the Omnians and the Philosophers and the Ephebians, whatever. Um, the Ephebians, as I recall, are very much, um, you know, we, we have the, the Omnians who have this religion, we'll, we'll say that with quotes because whether or not it's really being they're they are following the tenets of the religion or whether or not their religion is in fact really factoring into it at all um is being used to essentially essentially um enact colonialistic expansion you know they are acting without ethics one might 
suggest. And then you have the philosophers who are very much having all these, you know, they, they're very much structured after classic Greek philosophers, where they are having all these discussions and arguments um, about the world and about, you know, how to act, and then not doing anything. Yeah. They're hang like, uh, if I recall a joke correctly, there is one of them who has not left a bathtub for like three years. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you have this, uh, the, you know, the, the lens of acting without ethics and ethics without acting. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I also like that this book, um, this is one of the ones that muses on like the nature of evil, um, with Vorbis being such a developed character, um, that, you know, Vorbis is there being evil, not just because he tortures and kills people and is a sociopath and orders others to torture and kill, but that he, it's that he shapes other people into this, this mold and makes them want to do that. Um, so there's, there's a scene with Simony in the last act where Brava tells him like, no, you're becoming Vorbis. Like, you were doing what he would do, and you just, like, you know, just because it's your idea doesn't make it good. Um, and and that that's, you know, one of the real evil things that Vorbis does is, like, convincing other people to, like, follow in his mold and believe the way that he does. In, in a way, a lot of the um, higher-up Omnian characters are moving, using the religion to found worship of themselves. Yeah. We, I, there, there's, there's a number of historical parallels you can draw on with Omnianism. Um, mm. The one that, one of the, one of the ones that stands out most prominently is how of during the late medieval and early renaissance periods the papal uh, or the the papacy stopped being just you know oh hey we run the cat we run catholicism but was in fact a political entity and you know and there's always the statement that you know the largest landowner in europe is the catholic church but like they were a political power they they waged wars they were a they were a nation unto themselves and Omnianism has come to the point where, in the text, it is hard to decipher the Omnian imperialistic state from the religious structure it purports to be, and there's no and there's no difference between them. Um, yeah. Where when the Amphibians say, "Hey, we're going to war," it's we're going to war with this church empire nation. We don't. You know, it, it's all one thing, and which gets into part of our stuff of where religions, at some point, once they grow large enough, they're they sort of you know become a thing where you're doing stuff in service to the structure of the church instead of the instead of doing stuff because you believe in that thing, which tends to happen when you have large sweeping. Uh, sort of 
monocultural things like omnianism. Yeah. Cough, cough, Christianity, cough, cough. Yeah, hi, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm Justin, I was raised Protestant, uh, I, uh, Trust me, I know how this goes. <laughs> uh, another thing that that Terry really formalizes, I feel like, in in this novel, and then he, he expands on even further later, is this sort of morphological resonance thing with uh, how gods are are created and shaped by their believers. In in his words, like jelly into a mold. Um, sometimes that's, you know, actual, like, oh, it's the thunder God, uh, and we have to, you know, get lightning on, on offer. Um, and, and sometimes it's, you know, walking together in the desert the, and, you know, we, we will see that in Hogfather among other places. Yeah, for sure. I also really like the tension slash relationship between, uh, religion and science here, and and also uh, specifically be- between religion and atheism. It, it, it is the kind of D and D cleric problem of like that that you know the gods just definitively are real, and that it it takes real cojones to be an atheist, um, like Simony is, um, despite you know concrete, <laughs> despite concrete evidence. Um, but there's this tension between like all of these, all of these different concepts I really liked. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of references in this that I didn't pick up on until I went through L space. So there's like, for instance, there's a line where, um, Am says something like I was beginning to think I was a tortoise dreaming about being a God, um, which that mirrors a Taoist writing. There's a lot of really not large things, but just little little snippets that are little references to lots of different philosophies and religions. Right, and even you know, well, what's the turtle standing on is a reference to a uh, a philosophical problem. You know, turtles all the way down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just to circle back quickly because I'm realizing that we're using shorthand. Uh, the D and D cleric problem again, as you said, is the you know. How do you how do you have faith if you actually know that God is real? Because um, faith is is the belief in the absence or even contradiction of evidence. Yeah, you know we we see a really good example of that and of of the atheism question in the uh, barroom brawl with the philosophers where they're all. Um, saying very mean things about gods and looking around nervously as, you know, wine jugs explode or it suddenly gets very cold or an angry penguin appears in the window. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really good scene where they start out being like, yeah, gods are, gods are stupid, you know, outmoded belief system. Who needs them? Uh, except for the, the God of wine. We really like him. And mm-hmm. um, also the, the, you know, goddess of cold weather is a great person. Love her. Listen, Dionysus got me through a lot of Hades runs. I'm, 
So I believe, I, I will consider myself at least a slight worshiper of Dionysus at this point. <laughs> yes, okay, so this is another thing that, like, side note was buck wild, was reading this at the same time as playing a lot of Hades. Yeah, and, and what's great about that and about Hades is that, like, in Hades they're portrayed very closely to sort of original Greek ideals where they were dicks, honestly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> self-involved uh petty gods yeah and there were lots of lots of zeus references in this in this book too in with bulls and swans and things like that yeah oh and then there's and then there's uh patina the the goddess of wisdom (laughs) who was holding a penguin (laughs) because the sculpture was really really bad at it I mean, honestly, I love penguins, so the amount of attention to penguins in this book, I'm very happy for. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we, we did go on this. I I do like the whole, like, we get an evil inquisitor for this, but, you know, it's very clear in the story that Vorpus is not doing this because he believes, like, in some, like, righteousness of purpose or that he is divinely inspired like we might see. No, it's just because he's a dickbag. Yeah. Which, honestly, that that's just, that's great. Like, if Omnian does, if Omnianism did not exist, Vorbus would find just another way to be a dick. I mean, and, and that's kind of another theme musing that's, that, I don't even know if it's really a thesis, more so just an example of, you know, the idea of Oh, this this group um, using religion as a justification for their actions, mm-hmm. and in particular harmful actions, which feels very salient at the current moment, but has definitely been salient over the past hundreds of thousands of years. So, um... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, as is generally the case around the time of a prophet is expected, the church redoubled its efforts to be holy. This was very much like the bustle you get in any large concern when the auditors are expected, but tended towards taking people suspected of being less holy and putting them to death in a hundred ingenious ways. This is considered a reliable barometer of the state of one's piety in most of the really popular religions. Oof. Woof. Yeah, it's not subtle. Uh, <laughs> like, you have you have this megachurch that is waging war um, in the name of a god that they don't believe in. Yep. Uh, yeah, and sort of on the on the, the subject of evil, uh, it, the thing one of the things that really stuck out to me, uh, just because I spent far more time than I really cared to admit um, doing um, psychology in college, uh, the one of the things I pulled out as a as a sort of mini button uh, was the the lines. Uh, there are hardly any excesses of the most crazed psychopath that cannot easily be duplicated by a normally kindly fam- family man who just comes into work every day and has a job to do, uh, which is like the Milgram experiments uh, sort of demonstrated that pretty clearly. That you know you it's it's the it's the follow on from from the Nuremberg trials and stuff. Basically, like, you know, the slide into evil is is made easier when it's just a job to do. Yeah. And you're just seeing parts of it. Yeah, there's a lot there about, you know, the, 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 I'm trying to remember if this has been a thing, but like, but the banality of evil. Yeah. Of, 
if you get, I mean, it's a very relevant thing right now. If you get enough people to just think that they're just doing their jobs, they'll do a lot of awful shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All of that felt super, super relevant. As as something that goes back to, which is abroad too, uh, there's a line that I really liked describing Vorbis um, from when Om looks into Vorbis's mind and sees that it's just mirrors, basically. That like that's how Om describes it is um, that he's just reflecting his own voice, you know, over and over again back at himself. Mm-hmm. That I thought that I thought was really interesting with the fact that, you know, we the last antagonist we had was also essentially just reflecting her own ideas back at herself endlessly. I think there's also a small bit here about um kind of what is lost to history. Um, in particular, like coming on like from the expansion of religions and through the con like the religion inspired conquest. Like there's a, uh, one of this, this didn't actually come up in your summary, which is surprising because it's like one of the standout moments in my memory of this is that in that desert there, there is a man um, who, who is there simply to worship all the small gods. Oh yeah. Um, mm. I can't remember the character's name because again it's been like twelve years for me. Saint Angel, um, I think. It's a yeah, Saint Ungulant. Yeah. Um who you know, uh, uh, has has faith enough for, for all these gods and is basically um in a way carrying on uh traditions that have been lost to history otherwise. And in that way um, there's sort of this idea of, oh, there is more to religion than just faith in gods. Um, this this character has kind of is is only able to carry on these individual, you know, feed these gods through belief. But you know, these were all religions that existed in the world, and now there is just one man um, trying to who, who believes in all of them. And 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 is trying to keep them alive. Yeah, yeah. I I had a really hard time trying to sum him up succinctly, and <laughs> thus just sort of uh, glazed him into the journey through the desert. Because th- there's a lot there. And now, just like the small gods that he worships, he too has been forgotten. <laughs> oh no! I, I I have belief enough for him. I do think I like. I mean, this is something like I mean, like that gets called in like throughout the plot. Where like there are several times where uh, Om remembers the the god that he displaced, and mm-hmm. can't even remember what he was a god of. Yeah, right. Along these lines, too. the The other thing that I thought was fascinating that was a you know running thing throughout this was the commentary on the former prophets. <laughs> you mean the prophets were just people who wrote things down? <laughs> yeah, and and like brother keeps referring to the writings of the the other prophets, and Am is like. The fuck said that? And probably like you. And Om's like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think I recall him, said the tortoise. Eyes wobbled when he talked. And he talked all the time, to himself. Wandered into rocks a lot. He wandered in the devil wilderness for three months, said Bertha. 
That explains it then, said the tortoise. There's not a lot of E to it there. There isn't mushrooms. I think it's a really interesting commentary on how, like, you know, and, and who knows whether these things that those particular prophets wrote down are actually what has been carried through history, too, or whether that's been distorted by the church throughout all the years. Probably has. Oh, absolutely. I think that l- links back into to an idea that, that Aaron brought up very earlier, um, which, and I mean, maybe this is, you know, just a thing that I also felt coming at this from a Jewish reading and a Jewish background, is the idea of questioning your religion and questioning its purpose and, and even, you know, confronting it when you find problems with it. Um, I mean, I believe, and this, again, correct me if I'm remembering correctly, but... Um, at the end there, um, where Om is suddenly restored back to power through this random occurrence. Oh, yeah. Um, Om, you know, you know, starts speaking and it's wonderful. If if you haven't seen the book, like, it's some wonderful text where, like, everything that Om says is, like, preceded by Roman numerals as if it's a commandment. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. It's such a good little bit. And, you know... Um, restored to power is like, all right, time to fuck things up. Yeah. And brother goes, no. Yeah. Like, that's not how we're doing this. Like, he's restored to power and he immediately starts being a complete jackass again. And brother's like, no. Like, excuse me, we the worshippers are the ones who have power here. So, yeah. Like, again, that that sort of, you know, religion is what you make it. And, uh, you know, just strictly like just what taking whatever is wrote without any uh introspection is is harm is is leading to harm yeah do we do we have button moments for this i sort of pulled one in already um i i also you know just can for, you know, considering, and I might regret this in a couple of months when we actually release this episode, but, um, you know, we're right before the election right now. And, and the, this, this sort of brief discussion of how the Phoebean tyrant, uh, is elected and immediately goes from, you know, the, the golden child and, you know, the, the hero of, uh, Ephib to, Oh, he's probably a criminal because he got elected. It was was really interesting to me. Honestly, yeah. the Ephebian way of doing politics and the way of viewing your rulers is an appropriate one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, for me, it was all the stuff on the, air quotes, fundamental truth. The most obvious instance of this is with the actual truth is that this this... Um, priest is sent to a he gets a bunch of tomatoes chucked at him um for you know claiming something as ridiculous as there was only one god crawls back to omnia like being sad um is then murdered by the exposition so that they can show his like mutilated body and be like look at what the ephibians did um and then they use that as like excuse to send a fleet um to get destroyed which then is like the excuse for the fucking army that's been in the the desert the entire goddamn time like that the the army left before this priest even went to a in the first place but there's this like 
But no, the fundamental truth is that the Ephebians killed him. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, God, no, no. As a side note here, as something that... A footnote, if you will. Uh, yes, as a footnote, perhaps. Um, this is something that I should have added to the, like, what was confusing section on our document. But, okay, so Vorbis has this whole plan, right? How the fuck was he planning to get out of that labyrinth before Brava came along? I think that was the underpants gnomes section. I mean, my imagination is that he didn't think that his fleet was going to be destroyed. Yeah. And so, you know, the fleet would have done most of it. And then it's like, all right, now for the occupation, we're going to force them to let uh, the army in once we have already conquered them. The labyrinth was only in the palace, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just siege tactics, that. (laughs) Well, but he needed to get out of it to, like, let the, you know, let the army in through the gates. Or I guess the army could have, like, then, you know, not just snuck in, but just, like, had an assault from outside. Yeah. Brother makes that whole bit easier. It's just, you know. Yeah. It's just without, you know, without a navy, you've just got to improvise. And sometimes you just have to find an illiterate. Uh, photographic memory, uh, not novitiate. Forbes just looks outside the window. Ah, there's my MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the that um, there really is a little bit what Brava is is like. Ah, yes, that is the magical child who will get me through the labyrinth. Fuck Aradinie. <laughs> <laughs> some 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 good labyrinth humor there for for people who care. <laughs> uh, I mean, so I can tell you like the bits that again stick with me through um through the years because you know I'm not gonna have the button moments of like where something came out, but you know those those moments where it's like. Okay, the the things I really remember are that are the 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 small god rushed out in the desert, and you know the one line that everyone's going to remember, um, which I, I imagine we don't really care about spoilers, even of of the, uh, because it's it's where Terry sort of gets to a lot of one lines, which just sort of give you goosebumps, and in this one, it's I believe in turtles. <laughs> Which you know is 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 very is very fun in the moment, um. But also beyond that is you know brother, be, you know brother's faith is questioned, um, and we have not that I believe in a god, but I believe in the reality. I believe believe in what I see in the world, um. And and again, it's it's that sort of bit of taking stock of what is what 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 we can find in the world and that being the important thing rather than necessarily the 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 lofty ideals of religion. Yeah, that's a good line. And then if you don't know the context of I believe in turtles, just read the book and uh <laughs> there's a point where uh Didactylus is like like saying like why are you believing in the turtle. The turtle is just a thing that is real. Yeah. And I, I think it's like, it, it, it's, um, I mean, it's just, part of that is that people, like, you know, we like to believe in things, that uh, there are certain things that, that we have a predisposition towards, like, you know, I put, you know, 
I have faith in, as cheesy as it sounds, my friends and people I love because I, you know, I believe in them. They're real, but I believe in them. Um, and I, I think it's just like an interesting thing of like the, the that Didactylus is trying to say, why well, you you can only put faith in stuff you believe in. But I think it's it's the sort of the the the, uh, the counterpoint to the cleric problem is that you can have faith in stuff that you know is real. I mean, it's just that that it's a different kind of faith. It's a it's trust instead. Yeah. And yeah, Didactylus has a fascinating reaction to you know the. Uh, bringing brought to the underground and having them, you know, discovering that they've been, you know, worship, you know, using his, using his like scientific text as a holy text. And like, he gets so mad that he storms off for the entire last act of the book. Which fair. That's valid. Um, he, 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 he's, he's a philosopher who, you know, uh, he's allowed, he's allowed to be bad, but Hey, death of the author. <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's funny as i said before i remember reading the book i didn't remember like just how good it was it is my favorite Discworld book that as like in my memory it is it is my favorite so it's a good book like it's a full meal of a book but it's really good yeah i'm very glad that you are available at and on you know four hours notice <laughs> <laughs> You can tell because my memory is shit, but I still have enough of this book in my head. Yeah. So, so listeners, for the timeline of this, Anna, Evan, and I play an RPG like every other week, nominally. Um, last night we had our game. We mentioned we were doing our small gods recording, and it's like, wait, I, you're doing this without me? And we're like, you want to read the book in 24 hours? Be our guest. And we still had you on. <laughs> Proof. Yep. That you do not actually need to read the book to guest star on this show. Wait, no, don't wait, don't tell no, the other guest stars that. Yeah, you just need to have like an obsessed, like literally one of your favorite pieces of literature be the discussion <laughs> point. With my experience with Project fans, that's not as rare as I. As <laughs> that is true. I'm pretty sure I could like enable if I say like men at arms, I'll get like four people who like just randomly flock to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or monstrous regiment for that matter. Yeah. I was going to say monstrous regiment. You might have more luck. I feel like men at arms. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get off topic or you can cut this, but you know, I feel like of guards books, that's not the one that you're going to have the most people like this is, this is mine. This is the one I pick above all else. Maybe, yeah. but that's also the Boots Theory book. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Because uh, right. the the other the other one I think that a lot of people flock to is Hogfather, hmm. which is the the other that is the spiritual successor to this book too. Mm-hmm. Um, and is my favorite. Oh, we're so close to Susan. I can almost. It's- What's the one? Almost taste it. Don't want to taste Susan. So I have a I have a slight Vorbis related tangent that I that I want to go into. This is go for yeah. it. This is another me praising Terry for for a thing that he did well, and I'm going to pat him on the back, and I'm going to give him a cookie in the afterlife for it. Um, Vorbis is a very interesting and engaging villain, 
at no point in the story are you offered a point are you offered a chance or a avenue to sympathize with Vorbis. This is very important to me because doing this where you're giving somebody introspection to how a villain thinks and what their motivations are and how they think, there a lot of writers will attempt to portray that character sympathetically and say, oh, hey, well, they're well-reasoned in their actions, and as an attempt to make them interesting, I'm going to attempt to make them feel sympathetic. I call this the Star Wars villain expanded universe syndrome, um, where, you know, let's take this fascist warlord and make him Sherlock Holmes. Um, I love my blue boy Thrawn. However, Timothy Zan, get off your bullshit. You're riding a fash. But I, I, that is something that I like. I will congratulate. Like that, I will say this is a very good thing of the book. Is that like we are never given an avenue for? Oh, here's why Vorbis might be this way. Here's why. Here's why Vorbis might be justified. No, you don't get that. That's you're not given that opportunity, and. Forbus is in the wrong, and um, that is very clearly stated in the text. And I just want, and I like that. That is, um, you can write villains, people. You can write interesting, layered villains without having to make having to make the reader try to sympathize with them. It's doable. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah you can get their motivations and still not like the motivations. Yeah. Vorbus is fascinating because he's. He's so compelling too, or like not compelling in terms of like liking him, but in terms just of just interesting, right? Like in terms of like following through what he's doing, all of his pieces are really engaging. I mean, so uh, it's interesting in that he is very similar. I'm I'm going to say this a word that is a little weird for discussing Linger. He's very mechanically similar. To Vetinari, I was just yeah. thinking that. Yeah, yeah. I've I've got that. I've got that in later in the document. He really <laughs> is. Um, yeah, because it's it's that kind of plans within plans within plans, um, manipulating people. Yeah. Um, but Vetinari is typically displayed, even even if he's very much a morally gray character, generally tries like. He's aiming to have best intentions, at least for Ankh Morpork. I feel like if you took Vorbis and the Tyrant and, like, smushed them together into one character, you would get Vetinari. I think that the two of them balance out interestingly in a way that forms Vetinari, or at least the, the skeleton of Vetinari. And what is Vetinari if not just a skeleton, a skeleton. you know, <laughs> covered in skin and clothes? And malice. What else would we like from this? I, I love the philosophers too. That there were so many goofs um, and so many truly grown-worthy puns with them. Um, but I, I absolutely love them. I think my favorite little pun here is um, for Didactylos, who is really enjoyable and. I love his name because like he's he's a reference to Diogenes. So like both names start with a D. So we we're starting there. And Didactylos, you know that it seems to be reminiscent of the word didactic, which like that makes sense because he's, you know, it, taking care of the library. 
And then you go one level farther and you realize that it means two-fingered and is a reference to a very rude British gesture. I was I was literally like realizing that as I was looking over your summary. I was like, oh wait, I, I can translate that. Yeah. Um <laughs> and and a lot of the there's a lot of puns like that with the philosophers. Like there's Aristocrates, which is like the mixture of Aristotle and Socrates and an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really. Oh, and Aristophanes. True. Right. So that's yeah. a triple. That's a triple word pun there. Yeah, the the puns are really fun for them. And and the whole economy of of philosophy, how people, you know, go in and and buy axioms and uh and things like that. Yeah. From these philosophers. And, and like the I mean the the broader thing where there's these like gangs almost of philosophers. That was that was actually kind of a thing. Like the schools would actually like fight. God, fuck West Side Story. Give me that musical. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh, ooh, that's actually a really good idea. TM 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 TM. That, that's the that's the, that's the next blades of blades of the dark game I want to do. Just a roving gang of philosophers. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, th- there's. I think there was a like a reference to like Xenophanes or something at some point too. Yeah, and sort of like the the pre and and post Socratic schools and things like that. Yeah, it's like it's kind of a mishmash, but it's a really fun one. Um, I also really like death's appearances here, mm. um, and the and death of rats. Yes, yes. Squeak. And and that does that does give an like um another interesting point of this which I don't know how um how much it's really analyzed in other books I can't really recall but that uh the afterlife in Discworld is specific to the people. Yep. Yeah. It's what you believe. Uh, yeah, which does make it interesting that uh Vorbis and brother end up in the same place. Yeah. Um, Because that implies that perhaps in that final moment, right before his death, Vorbis truly believed. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I I loved the the Black Desert that in Omnianism, you have to cross the Black Desert to reach judgment. All of the different characters who die... Um, their various reactions to that desert are fascinating. Um, that everybody reacts differently, and the entire ship that goes at the yeah. same time. Yeah, um, and I, I also really liked the parallel to Brava, you know, crossing the desert with Vorbis and Ohm, and and then you know, Brava is going to guide Vorbis through the desert again. Mm-hmm. Brother shows up. Oh, this again. Yeah. This motherfucker. All right, come on. Leading you to the to goddamn judgment. Yep. Terry's right. also been waiting since, I guess, pyramids to make a chain letter to the Phoebians joke, which is a very, it's a, it's a fairly deep cut from Christianity. It was like the letters to the Ephesians. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Terry. Anna, you noted, uh, brother memorizing the library uh and my my entire thought process during that entire thing was like oh 
Terry like jumped the gun on digitization of rare texts by like a decade. Oh, I mean, like that one's also just a very clear reference to the you know burning of Alexandria. Right. Yeah. yeah. With like, with a cameo bar by our favorite orangutan. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, we got an L space mention. Yep. Yep. It's like, oh, we're thirteen books in. I get jokes now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I I also love um, on the back to the philosophers very briefly. There's references to actual stuff that like Archimedes built, or at least mythically built. Um, that like Archimedes had a steam engine that works the same way that Urn's steam engine works. And there's the the Archimedes death ray. That, the death ray was so good. <laughs> yeah. There's also there's also a piece that I highlighted that um really shows Terry's history as a like science writer because there's the there's the bit where he actually goes through like the speeds of everything and what the implications are for the speed of light, which is fucking right. wild, right? right? Like the sun travels faster than light. That made my head spin. Um. <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Oh shit! Wait, the system that I wrote doesn't make sense. Doesn't matter." But then, but then it's turned into like a a plot point, basically. Right. Yeah, I wonder if maybe he was starting because he was very active on 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 like muds, you know, all of the news groups too. And so I wonder if maybe people were starting to be like, "Well, but wait, how does the sun move?" And and he was he probably put this in specifically to be like, "Aha, finger guns." <laughs> Quite possibly, it works because I say it does. You have to have faith. There's also a lot of a lot of um, puns about nuts. A lot of a lot of ball puns. Um, there's that there's that one um, that one joke which is funny if you especially if you've ever spent time around mechanics where there you know Ern has the you know the thing that's for for twisting nuts along with the bottle of penetrating oil. I just love the labyrinth. It's just a funny bit. I love it. And the fact that it precedes the Ogloff comic by like 15 years just makes it even better. Um, hmm. If you, Listeners, if you do not know what Ogloff is, it is very not safe for work. So if you are one of our younger listeners or you're at work, please don't look it up. But please just Google Ogloff Labyrinth. It's possibly one of my favorite like dub comics ever. So yeah, it made me comfortable that it was finally lampooning an Abrahamic religion, although it was kind of slipping towards maybe an Islamist portrayal, maybe. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't want to say anything too mean, but uh, the, the monotheism by omission that Om does is particularly good. There's a little thing that um, I was like, ooh, um, is that there is a racial slur used about three quarters of the way in this book that it pertains to uh, usually East Asian people. And, uh, you know, for a book that doesn't have any Asian people in it, besides maybe uh, Luzay in it, um, it feels really weird and out of place, and ooh, it's awkward. Uh, we also we also have our... the rip- turn of the curse of the dialectical writing. I'm also not sure how I feel about Lucy and the history monks these days. 
I think I think that's an open question that as we perhaps see them more in future books, I will make up my mind. I don't quite remember how much how many stereotypes are leaned into for them. Um, my recollection is that a lot of them are lampshaded as opposed to leaned into, but yeah, which is, which is why I I'll leave the jury out on my opinion of them. Um, I have fond memories certainly of them. Um, the, I, I think one of the things that definitely pointed me in the direction of like, that there were some kind of Islam-ish aspects to Omnianism that were definitely uncomfortable. The, the main one for me was at the, the point where um, there's the comment that like art isn't allowed, mm-hmm. uh, which. Well, but that's also like uh, iconoclasm is, 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 I mean, Fair, like the you know the the depiction of Muhammad is is definitely a, a a big piece of Islam, but like there is definitely iconoclasm in uh, Christian sex as well. Yeah, like that's that's definitely a thing with the Amish as well, specifically. Um, the the Council of Iams was the one that what that really touched me because that's pretty that's a one letter difference from Imam. Mm. Oh, I thought mm. that was just like a thing for like the the various councils of Nikea worms. Mm. That's right. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a, it, it's a diet of worms. Yeah, it's a diet of worms. I thought that that was a pun. The like, I am something something like pun on I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the obviously, as I as I have not reread it in in recent times, I I have less of a lens of um what I might have missed or might have. Um, gone o- like glassed over, glossed over. Um, but uh, a sort of interesting point um, that is not necessarily specific to this book, um, but specific to the idea of omnianism or omnism, whatever we want to call it, um, in Discworld as a whole, is that, um, and this may get into some light spoilers for Justin. Um, <laughs> I see the headphones have come off, um, but that omnism, while they like while the the arc of the religion is that it has moved towards nonviolence, it still exists as a heavily proselytizing religion um, within the realm of Discworld. Yeah, um, and that's not really examined um, as a area of of of, of harm. Um, which, quite honestly, it can, it can be. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Brother, something of a non-believer with with instructive pamphlets. Yeah. Constable visit right. the, the non-believers with instructional pamphlets. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Constable visit. Yeah. I'm saying this as somebody who is white, etc. Um, but. I don't think that any of these things would have necessarily pinged for me other than the other than the slur that Justin referenced if I wasn't like specifically reading this in a critical way. If I was just reading through it for funsies. Um not that this isn't fun, Aaron. But if I if I were just reading um without the critical eye, I don't think that any of these would have like necessarily 
pinged on my potentially problematic radar. Mm-hmm. But that's that's again me speaking as somebody who is white and you know somewhere between agnostic and atheist. I mean, yeah. The, the, other than that, I I didn't. I don't think I particularly linked too much of it because, but that's partly just because there's a lot of coming at this from a somebody who did a lot, who, who's done a lot of Western European history. Is that like there's enough really heavy-handed stuff with like Catholicism specifically that nothing else that it didn't really scan for me as having too many Islamic influences, but that's yeah, that's just how I read it. Um, I, I will say, um, given a later book down the line, um, which is much more egregious on that front, um, it feels less, like, less intentional. <laughs> yeah, and, and I was also very purposefully using Islamist versus Islamic. Yeah. Um, but the, um, I mean, the, the, for at least for me, like, there there's sort of, like, two or three historical things that it really pings for me is like, is you have Spanish, the, you have the Spanish church, um, but there's also the, the reformation in Germany. Um, and both of those are sort of clumped into the, the sociopolitical structure of how Rome was run in the, in, you know, the middle of of the last millennium, Mm -hmm. which I think is like, it's a pastiche, which, like and it just sort of conglobed all together, uh, but I think it's fine. Should we move on to references or? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. I mean, so much death, so much death, and death of rats, and our favorite line: "There's no justice, there's just me." I thought you were going to say squeak. <laughs> oh, <well>, that too. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this might be like death's busiest book. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, or, or at least I mean, like, not, not uh, apart from the apart from Mort. Yeah. Where where we get to see death death punching uh, punching his Todd card. Right. <laughs> um, there's a couple small ones too. There's a couple million to ones. Uh, go on, do deformed rabbit is something that returns again and again and again and again. Uh, I I wonder whether Vorbis's um air quotes, diplomatic party is a, uh, perhaps is it a sortian horse? I think so. Uh, in a way. Um, we've also, we've also got the, it's sort of a reflection from, um, guards of, you know, um, grabbing the eagle by a delicate piece of anatomy, which I, okay, this is a brazen, brazen ignore like ignoring actual bird anatomy i yeah. have to say birds don't work like that terry eagles are different on Discworld, and this is uh this is something to, to contemplate sort of for those of you who have read tiffany aching but does brother have third thoughts i, I feel like he might uh, quite possibly like he he is like Especially by the end of the book, he is thinking in a very witchy way. Yeah. Which is interesting. 
and from the story aspect, I really liked the circularity of Alm starting out on his back, dying of, of exposure, uh, and, and where brother ends up, you know, before the coda on, you know, tied on the back of a, of a cast iron turtle, tortoise, whatever. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a lot of circularity here, you know, with the desert as well. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a tiny funny thing to talk about here, which is at the start of this book, like, um, is practical, like, is this weird, like, feral goblin creature in the form of a tortoise and uh, tries to curse a lot of people and all, like, it, it's, they're, they're great and, like, the voice evens out a little bit, but all I can just imagine is just like this shrill, like, this shrill, like, goblin voice that not should not be coming from a turtle or tortoise. I believe like, you had prepared this voice, Justin. Yes. Hawks to peck your liver! Afflict you with a thousand cuts! The cannibal fungi of... Who knows how that's going to sound in the recording. Um, but it's just... It, it's, it's this weird... It's... it's it's very endearing because it's just almost so pathetic at the start of the book. And I sort of love it. Oh, and the, there's the point where he like zaps, he zaps brother with a, with a bolt of lightning and brother's like, wow, it's like, it's like when you pet a cat the wrong way. I just like randomly turned to the right page with the, like the three basic approaches to philosophy. Uh, the Xenoists, who say that the world is basically complex and random. There's the Ibidians, they say the world is basically simple and follows certain fundamental rules. And there's me, says Didactylus, pulling a scroll out of his, its rack. Master says basically it's a funny old world and doesn't contain enough to drink. It's a good line. God, the thing that gave me chills, though, was the um, the the thing that Om says to all all of the gods... One, this is not a game. Two, here and now you are alive. Yeah. That's a really that's a really interesting sequence when he confronts the other gods and takes action. Yeah, it was it actually reminded me uh, a bit of the a lot of the sort of reportrayals of the uh of the Iliad. Um you know, with the 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 people on the ground being sort of the reflections of what's going on in in between the gods. Yeah, and and we have the I don't know I don't remember to what extent we've seen this so far, but the um the the recurring theme of that on the disc the gods really do play dice. Um, it's like a Warhammer or something, basically. Yeah. I mean, they're playing a TTRPG. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, it, I I feel like there's direct references from, like, Blind IO doing things. Mm-hmm. And just being like, oh, these are my characters. Um. Thunder rolled. It rolled a six. Do I want to rate this book? Yeah. Yeah, let's do the rating. Cool. Um, Aaron, what would you rate this book? Uh, uh, four and a half out of five philosophers agree. I don't know. How would you rate this book? I would give it nine out of ten illusory beverages. Evan, would you like to give us a rating? 
Uh, sure. I give it seven turtles out of a rating I can't remember. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to give it 7.5 out of 8 Prophets in the Desert. And now we get to the point where, because we have finished recording this episode, I get to actually look at the next book. Um, so That's a good bit. We're extremely dedicated to our spoiler-free policy. All right, so this is... Lords and Ladies. Lords and Ladies, which was written in 1992. All right, uh, book 14, so we're, we're like, we're 35% of the way down here. We're, we're chucking through. Yeah. We've hit the, we've hit the good books. <laughs> oh, that's a very, that's a very interesting romance novel that was popped in the suggestions there. Uh, we're going <laughs> to ignore that for the time being. Uh, Lords and Ladies, a novel of Discworld, book 14. Although they may feature witches and wizards, vampires and dwarves, along with the occasional odd human... Terry Pratchett's best-selling Discworld novels are grounded firmly in the modern world, taking humorous and matter foibles. Each novel reveals our true character nature. It's a dreary midsummer's night in the kingdom of Lycra. But music and romance aren't the only things filling the air. Magic and mischief are afoot, threatening to spoil the royal wedding of King Varence and his favorite witch, Magrat Garlac. Invaded by some fairy trash, soon it won't only be champagne that's flowing through the streets. Oh my god, we're doing Midsummer Night's Dream! Yes, we are! Fairy <laughs> uh, <laughs> bullshit! Yeah, fair folk in a fairly accurate original depiction. God, this is gonna be like... This is gonna be like peak bullshit for me, isn't it? Oh. Mm. It's gonna be great. I'm looking forward to it. Fairy trash. See, I'm going to say... Your peak bullshit is going to be Nightwatch. Oh yeah, no, we we've already established we've already established with our guards episodes that that is my purest distillation. Yeah, of, with the- but specifically Nightwatch, and um, we we've actually gamed things out such that we will actually be able to release it on May twenty fifth. Because we're we're those kinds of nerds. Yep, drama trash. Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.